Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for about three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you once again for this privilege that we have to gather together in safety and peace for worship. We thank you, Lord, to come now and stand under the preaching of your word. We know, Lord, that your word cleanses and renews our minds, and we need cleansing and we need renewal, for our minds have been defiled and made filthy and dirty. Lord, not just by the things we see and hear throughout the week, and ingest the filth and dirt of the world, but by our own sin, our minds have been corrupted. And so now, Lord, we look to you, Lord Jesus. Wash us, renew us, cleanse us, breathe on us, O Spirit of God. And may we hear from you today. We need to hear from you. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would open this text to us. Enable me, through your divine uh, provision, O Lord, May your grace um, anoint my mind, my lips, and my heart and overshadow me and use me as as a tool, an instrument in your hand to speak forth your word. In Christ's name, amen. Today is Reformation Sunday. And uh, so Reformation Sunday, obviously, is the... um, is the anniversary and reminder of us of the Reformation, the Protestant, the birth of the Protestant Reformation, beginning with Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg on that Sunday, October 31st, 1517. It literally happened on the 31st of October. We call it Halloween. It was called All Hallows' Eve, the eve of All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day, in the church calendar. And there was a big event, and that, that was the hammer that was heard around the world. And as that hammer was nailing that, that 95 theses, uh, the implications of that would resound up until today. And so as those who um, are in the tradition of Reformed theology, we realize that uh, we are always reforming and conforming to the Scriptures. And uh, one of the central tenets of the Reformation uh, 
is the sola scriptura. That is, um, that all faith and practice is governed by and, and, and authored by the scripture alone. You know, Luther, in his fight with the Catholic Church, in his debates with the cardinals um, and conflicts, was questioned on numerous occasions by what authority do you challenge the Holy Catholic Church, Luther? And when he thought about it, he says, only one authority, and that's the Word of God, the Bible. And uh, it was Scripture alone. You know, what, what led up to this was also something taking place during that time period, um, a development within a lot of the theologians and scholars who were um, looking to, um, to find more of a sense of identity and truth um, and an understanding of reality among the philosophers of that time, the theological philosophers. And it was encapsulated in a saying called Ad Fontes. In Latin, it means to the sources. And so Luther, as he began to examine and question the teachings of Roman Catholicism, understood if we're going to see where the church went wrong, we need to get back to the source. We need to get back to the Word of God. And this became the high call. It became the slogan of all reformers. Um, and so whether it was Calvin or Knox, whoever followed, looked to the Scripture. And that is because the Scripture is sufficient. That is because the Scripture is sufficient. The revelation that is contained, the special revelation contained from Genesis to the Apocalypse of John Reveal to us the will and mind of God, and if there's anything we need to know concerning faith and doctrine and practice, it can be found in Scripture. We don't need the traditions of men. We don't need the counsels of men. We don't need the catechisms of men. They might be helpful tools, but the ultimate authority rests completely in the Word of God, the Bible. And this is what we stand on. It was... It was, it was the, the stand, the famous stand that Luther took at the Diet of Worms. What did he say? He says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either popes nor councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. Luther goes on to say, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot it will not recant anything since it's neither right nor safe to go against conscience. May God help me. And that was his final stand he took when basically they had all the cannons of the Holy Roman Empire aimed at him, ready to, ready to destroy him. He would not recant. And so, yes, we look back to Luther, but this, the church is still moving forward. It is not the church of Luther, it's the church of Christ. And that was what Luther sought to recover, that we look back to, to the reality, to the source of what a true and pure church looks like. Well, why is this important today? It's important because in our very text, um, we come across a passage that has uh, been very controversial to some degree. Um, not too controversial for us as Reformed Baptists, but is controversial in the larger Christian community um, because the passage we are reading today is one of the largest proof texts that is used by those of the charismatic and Pentecostal persuasion to validate and prove that, um, that salvation or initiation 
into the Christian community comes in a two-stage process. Once you become a Christian, you are regenerated and you're baptized in water, but there's a second experience, a second blessing or a second stage of initiation, and that's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And according to traditional Pentecostal teaching, it is always manifest and verified by the speaking of tongues and prophesying. So therefore, um, the belief in those circles is that every Christian should be able to speak in tongues at some point in their conversion. If not, they are not a full Christian. They're only a half Christian. And so this text before us becomes the locus, if you will, of that doctrine, of that belief. And so what I'd like to do is examine that in light of the doctrine of sola scriptura. If we're going to go back to the sources, let's look back to the source, the book of Acts, the very source that the Pentecostals claim is the, the background for their belief, but also it brings to the question, do we need extra revelation? Is the Bible indeed sufficient? Is the Spirit of God still speaking through his people, through prophecies and through tongues and through mysterious languages? That's a question we need to answer today, and I'd like to answer that. Well, let's dive into our passage on packets. So in verse one, we begin to read the context, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Now, earlier we had read that initially when Paul went to Ephesus a year earlier, he was there for a very brief time, maybe a couple of days, and he promised the Ephesians there that he would come back, he would return to the city, but he needed to go back and complete his vow in Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover. He visited Antioch for a year, um, and then he made his way back. Remember, we, we were reading in chapter 18, he began his third missionary journey. It tells us in verse 23 of chapter 18, after spending some time there, that is Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so Paul begins to embark on his third missionary journey, and that embarkation begins now uh, with a revisiting of the churches he planted in the Galatian and Phrygian regions, strengthening them, encouraging them, um, and, and, and seeing the growth that had taken place. But also, he had longed to go to Asia. Asia, or Asia Minor, as you would call it, would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, he had longed to visit this area to share the gospel but the Spirit diverted him and said, no, you're going to Macedonia. And we, in the second missionary journey, we read all about Paul's mission to Greece and to Macedonia and to the cities there. And so now in the beginning of his third missionary journey, which is much shorter, it begins in Ephesus, really, as is the new territory, which is the capital city of Asia Minor. Uh, it is a very large city. It is, uh, it is a very influential city. Um, and it's a city, as we'll learn in the next couple of uh, messages, uh, that is just rank with idolatry and witchcraft and all kinds of uh, black magic and the black arts. Um, it is a well-known city for magicians and for sorcerers and for people who practice the dark arts. Um, so it was, very, it was a very uh, a dark place, spiritually speaking. Um, and, and, and we'll see even next week, uh, demons enter the picture and and uh, exorcists, and it gets 
gets kind of, you know, you know, into a very dark area, but, but God's power triumphs there, and Paul sets up shop there for two years. Um, if we, can, if we uh, look into the text today, we'll see that it begins and with a very interesting introduction. He meets some disciples along the way. He's not there yet, but in the foothills uh, leading up to Ephesus, he meets, a, as it says here, some disciples, and I quote, the question is, what kind of disciples were they? Now, in the New Testament, the word disciple is often used to describe a follower of Jesus, right? You see the word disciple, you automatically assume, well, disciple must mean a follower of Jesus, must mean a Christian. It's a synonym for Christian. But the word disciple in and of itself simply means a student or a pupil. Uh, you could be a disciple of Plato, you could be a disciple of Aristotle, you could be a disciple of Tyrannus, the man who owned the uh, lecture hall in which Paul would rent space from later, as we'll see. Um, and as we'll learn today, the identity of these disciples is not clear initially. But we do know that they are students, they are pupils. Uh, they are someone who is following the instruction of a teacher. Now, it appears that Paul assumed at the very least that these were Christians. And based on that uh, assumption, he began to evaluate their walk by asking two questions. These two questions indicate, as we will see, not so much a two-stage initiation into the Christian community, but rather a one-stage initiation. Let me make that clear. Let, let's, let's look at the two questions first. The first question he asked them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Their answer is, we didn't even know you were about a Holy Spirit. Didn't even know that existed. Second question, what baptism did you receive? Oh, baptism of John, of course. And so with these two questions and the subsequent answers, Paul is able to make a conclusion. These are not Christians who have not yet been baptized in the Spirit to speak in tongues. These are not Christians at all. If they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, there's a much bigger issue. They've never heard of Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. And so let's look at and examine these two questions. The first one, have you received the Spirit when you believed, is the text before us. Now the assumption by Pentecostals is that these were Christians, that these were indeed Christian disciples, these were disciples of Jesus who came to faith but had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit, having the second experience or the second stage of initiation. Part of the reason of this assumption is a faulty translation of verse 2. Most people who take this view are basing it on a translation of the King James Version, which translates... Uh, the question as, did you receive, did ye receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? The word there is not since, which would indicate that a period of time has passed since your initial conversion experience, but the word is when. When you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? What Paul is not asking is, did some period of, did you believe and did you have any special second blessing he's asking when you believed at the moment of conversion did you receive the holy spirit and so based on a more accurate translation of the original greek we should see here that he is looking at a one-stage initiation 
based on his view, the Pentecostals um, emphasize the second blessing. Paul, on the other hand, is not asking a second blessing question. He's asking, are they even converted? Are they Christians? Are they true believers? And for Paul, the evidence of a true Christian is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. No Holy Spirit, you've not been born again. Now, it's important to note that there are indeed Christians who have experienced a two-stage initiation. Well, the apostles did, right? They came to faith in Christ during his three-year public ministry, but Pentecost had not yet arrived. They were believers under the old covenant, and Christ didn't inaugurate the new covenant until the Last Supper, and through his death and resurrection, and finalized in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. So yes, the original 11 disciples, 11 apostles, experienced a two-stage initiation. And yes, it was very dramatic, particularly with the emphasis in, you know, going back to chapter 2, God was uniting all the nations. These speaking in tongues was not so esoteric language, but they were speaking the actual languages and the dialects of the people who were in Jerusalem for the Passover, proclaiming the glories of God. They were fulfilling prophecy. Something similar happens in Samaria as well, where there's a conversion experience. The Samaritans come to believe in Christ, and then Peter and John come and confirm the work of God. But this was not the normative or paradigmatic experience of every other conversion in the book of Acts. When Cornelius was saved, he was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And yes, they did speak in tongues, but it wasn't a second experience that happened uh, months or years later. It, was, it happened at the moment of conversion. And what people feel to re- realize is the bigger theme of over Acts in Acts 1.8, what did Jesus say? And this gospel, you will be my witnesses, what? In Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the Gentiles in the outermost parts of the world. Christ is outlining the progress of the gospel of each uh, uh, milestone, of each outpost in which the gospel will spread to all people. And at each uh, marker, at each milestone in the book of Acts, there is a mini-Pentecost which symbolizes the verification. Didn't Peter say that in Acts 15? Hey, guys, if you're questioning if the Gentiles are truly converted, just remember they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. They had an experience just like we did. The whole point was that Christ was validating the inclusion of the Samaritans, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God by showing the Jews that they had the same exact experience, this mini-Pentecost experience along the way. But you get into the book of Acts and you see other conversions. You see the conversion of Lydia, for instance, in her household, or of the Philippian jailer. There's no mini Pentecost there. Why? Well, the, the milestone has been reached. The confirmation has already been given. Well, what do we make of this particular case? This is, a, this is an anomaly here. Are they, are, is this, what milestone does this represent? And that's really the question here. And I think that what we're seeing here is that it marks the milestone of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Who were these people disciples of? They weren't disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. When Paul says, what baptism were you baptized into? They were not baptized into Christ. They were not baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were baptized into John's baptism. We have to go all the way back to the Gospels. And in the Gospel accounts, what took place? John baptized? Yes, he did. 
But it wasn't Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of preparation. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He he was the, the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah who came in the spirit of Elijah. And John the Baptist came as one of the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John belongs not to the New Covenant. His ministry and his life and his death all took place under the Old Covenant. He's an Old Testament prophet. And he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And his baptism was to call Israel to repentance. In other words, in order to prepare for the Messiah to come, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to forsake your sin. And part of that is through baptism symbolizing the cleansing and washing and renewal of your lives. But that baptism is insufficient because it belongs to the old economy. You see, there was a gap in understanding for these disciples. They never heard of Jesus. They never heard of his death and resurrection. Therefore, they never heard the gospel. They never heard of Pentecost. There was a lot they were missing. Now, they weren't quite like Apollos, because Apollos, remember last week, he had a very accurate understanding of who Jesus was. He was, just a, he was a little fuzzy. He needed some correction. But he was a believer. He wasn't rebaptized. This was a man who, who was, had a pure, mature understanding of who Jesus was, but had some gaps in. These people had a large gap. And it says, and Paul says to them a follow-up question, you know, what have you, into what have you been baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. Paul responds by saying, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now it stops there. Luke doesn't give us any more details, but you could only imagine he probably spent at least an hour explaining to them who Jesus was. Well, let me tell you about the one John pointed to, the one whose sandals he wasn't worthy to untie. And let me tell you what, what happened, is that Jesus, that John came baptizing with water, but Jesus comes baptizing with fire. You need to be baptized into Christ. You need to believe in Christ for your eternal redemption. And he has come to this world and he's died for you and he's risen from the dead and he preached the gospel to these men. And it says that on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. This happened when they believed, not since they believed. It was immediate. It was, it was following up and it was a confirmation, I believe, this milestone of the transition of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. These were Old Covenant believers. They were God's people. They were His elect. But they were just still stuck in the Old Covenant. They needed to know that the New Covenant has been inaugurated. And if you need, you're going to be God's people, you need to be part members of the New Covenant community. You need to be baptizing the baptism of the New Covenant the baptism of Jesus, and and you need to receive the Holy Spirit, in which they did. And this mini-Pentecost was a sign symbolizing that the covenants had changed. I think the number 12 there is no coincidence. There were 12 of them to indicate, as number 12 always indicates, the number of God's people. Whether it's the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the 144,000, which is 12 squared in the book of revelation the number 12 always 
talks to us about the number of God's people. And so therefore these people came to faith. They believed, they repented, and they were converted. So what do we make of the accompanying gifts that take place after Paul laid his hands on them? Well, the gift of speaking in tongues and prophecy, is this the normative experience then for all who are Christians, for all who are baptized? Well, I think we need to look back to the scripture to see a few things. Number one is that is that scripture teaches us that not all believers speak in tongues. Not all believers speak in tongues. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now we'll look at a few passages. A few passages to understand uh, what the baptism of the Spirit means and that uh, whether or not all Christians are to speak in tongues. First, look at chapter 12, verse 4, and hear what the Spirit says. For the Spirit is speaking to us through his word. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So, so here we're learning that everyone in the Christian community has a gift, has an ability that is given to them by God. There are varieties, there's various uh, giftings within the church. Verse 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means if you're a Christian, you've been born again, you have the Spirit of God in you, you've been given some, some manifestation of the Spirit in your life. For one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Okay, that's one variation. To another, utterance of knowledge. And according to the same Spirit, verse 9, another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing by one Spirit. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues. Notice, to another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God wills. It is the spirit who wills who has the gift of speaking in tongues. And not everybody has it. Some do, some don't. Some have other gifts, but they're all the same spirit. Now look at verse 12, because this is important. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now listen to this, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, all were made to drink of one spirit. So there is one body, not two bodies. See, in Pentecostal theology, there's two bodies. There are those who are in the first stage of initiation. They've been regenerated. They believe in Christ. They're going to heaven. But they're not quite as, um, as there as those who have the second stage or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So to give you a little background, when I was a Pentecostal, and I was a Pentecostal when I first got saved, I went to a church and I was told, Bob, you cannot serve in ministry. You cannot evangelize. You cannot serve in, serve in the homeless. You cannot do anything until you're baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues. I was considered a Christian, but I was an inferior Christian. I was kind of relegated to the, you know, to the court of the Gentiles there to mind my business until I had this second blessing. 
And so week after week, I would go up. They would have a call. Today's the day to get baptized in the Spirit. And they would huddle around you. And, and some of the people would kind of push you. And, and sometimes I had knew one guy who would get shoved back and forth within a circle. And they would bounce him around like a ping pong ball. Poor guy, his face turned beet red with embarrassment. Speak in tongues. Come on. You got to do it. It was all of the flesh. It was all of the flesh. If you're a Christian, the moment you were converted, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Every one of you. There is one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one body of Christ, and all, not some, all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. All have drunk of the Spirit. All have been filled with the Spirit, and all have the gift of the Spirit, but not all speak in tongues. That is something we must understand. Well, why did this all happen here, and how come it's not normative now? Well, let me just remind you of something. It, is, it was not normative throughout church history. First of all, we have to understand the temporary nature of, what, of speaking in tongues, okay? These people were speaking in tongues, but this was not meant to be a permanent fixture in the church. The New Testament had not been written. They depended strictly on the Old Testament. And so God, through speaking in tongues and prophesying, was speaking to the church, was ministering to the people. But once the New Testament was complete, anything that God wants to say to his people has been said. That's why it says in the book of Revelation, no, no one add to this book of prophecy and let no one take away from this book of prophecy. God's word is complete and has been given. And all that we need to know from God is there. And so the ministry of prophecies had diminished over time. And that was predicted in 1 Corinthians 13.8. Paul says, I'll show you the greater way. Love is the greater way, right? All these gifts are nice, but the real gifting that matters is love. He said, love never ends, Romans 1 Corinthians 13.8. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. As the church matures and develops and grows, and God gives his firm revelation to the church, we no longer act like children, but we talk and hear like adults. There's something else that's important to understand here. And it's important to understand that the gifts of tongues and prophesied were, turned to, were, were tied to the apostolic age. In every occurrence in the book of Acts where they're speaking in tongues... There is apostolic oversight. I want you to think about that. There, whether it's Peter or John or Paul, there is an apostle overseeing every event that takes place in the book of Acts. You don't see Apollos preaching and people speaking in tongues. You don't see Silas preaching and people speaking. No, it's always apostolic because it's a confirmation of the progress of the kingdom of God moving out to all the nations. And just as the office of the apostle was temporary, once, once the, the 12 apostles died, the office of the apostles is done. There are no more apostles. 
The office of apostle does not exist anymore. And just as the office of the apostle came to an end, so did much of the signs and wonders that accompanied them cease to exist too. And throughout the church age, those things didn't happen until you get to 1908 in the Azusa Street Revival. Now, I'm not here to criticize or to question the authenticity of what people have in their personal experiences, but theologically and biblically, I could see that there are no grounds for a theology that's not based on Scripture. For Paul, the bigger picture here is not whether they spoke in tongues or had a second experience. The question is, were they converted? Were they born again? Were they, were they even saved? And for Paul, the distinguishing mark of a true believer is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what Scripture says anyway? When you look at Paul's own writings, Romans 8 and 9, he says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, speaking of the Christians, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans 8 9. Very simple. You have the Spirit of God, you belong to Jesus. You don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? In Galatians 5.22, he tells us, well, there's evidence. How do you know the Spirit dwells in you? There's fruit. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? What does your life look like? Do you have hope, love, joy? (laughs) Do you have love, hope, joy, peace? Patience, kindness, long-suffering. Are those fruits evident in your life? We're fruit inspectors of others, but do we inspect our own fruits? The presence of the Holy Spirit is what is at stake here. And even for us, the call is if we do not have the Holy Spirit, and seek the Lord. One thing I love about the Bible, it tells us, I love the parable Jesus gives about, he says, if, if earthly fathers, if their kids ask for a, for a piece of bread, will they give them a scorpion? No. All right, what, what, what good father would do that? He says, well, if you ask your heavenly father for the Holy Spirit, will he not give it to you? If you don't have the Spirit, seek Him and beg Him that you may be born again and receive the Spirit of God. All right, back to Acts 19. I think this sums up and concludes the the argument of of this um, this question of, of of charismatic theology. But let's look at the final few verses and see what is important. What is important is that the Word of God goes forth, beginning in verse. 8 says as he entered the synagogue and he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God uh, uh, you know we know Paul's pattern right he gets to a city he goes to the synagogue he preaches to the Jews that, that's Paul's pattern and this time he has an extended period remember they wanted him back so he had a, a warmer reception here in Ephesus 
The fact that he was able to go to the synagogue for three months is actually incredible. And there's a word that's used there, the word reasoning. The word reasoning here in the Greek is the word dialogomenos. Dialogomenos. You get the English word dialogue. These people were open. They were willing to have a conversation. And the conversation went on for about three months. That's actually not bad given Paul's track record. However, it wasn't, it still was not looking good. Because once again, the Jewish people were stubborn, the Bible says. Not only were they stubborn, but they maligned. They spoke evil of the way. The term the way was a, a phrase that was used to describe the church at that time. Which makes sense, right? Jesus says those who are on the broad way right, lead to death. Only those who find the narrow way, which leads to life. There is a way that seems right unto man, but that way leads unto death. Right? Blessed are those who seek the ways of the Lord. The way was, was, was used as a phrase. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so they maligned and they spoke evil. But it, it tells us something else. He spoke of the kingdom of God. He spoke of the kingdom of God. This is the first time the phrase kingdom of God is used in the book of Acts. It's not the last time Paul would use it. But it demonstrates that Paul's theology was in line with what Christ was teaching. All of the gospel accounts, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And it lines up with everything Paul has been saying anyway. He went to the synagogue to what? Argue from the scriptures and prove that Jesus is who? The Jewish Messiah. The rightful heir of David. The king of Israel. The kingdom of God has come. And so it's within those three months that Paul is obviously reasoning he's talking to the jews about the nature of the kingdom of god and who and christ's kingdom and his authority and just like all their predecessors they rejected it because the jews did not want a spiritual kingdom they wanted an earthly kingdom with earthly political power that would crush rome and elevate israel and jerusalem to the highest kingdom of the earth they were not thinking about the importance of having their sins forgiven they were just thinking about crushing their human enemies. And so in their hardened hearts, they rejected the gospel. You know, the word stubborn is used there. And the word stubborn is the word that's used often for a donkey. Remember in Acts 7, what did, what did Stephen say to the Jews? You stiff-necked Jews. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. That word stiff-necked is used often in the Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel who were in rebellion against God. You know, what is it saying? You think of a donkey, right? And you think of the donkey resisting you, and you're pulling, and they just stiffen their neck, and they, you know, sometimes my dog does that. I'm trying to pull him, and he's, he's resisting me. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were resisting God. They were fighting against God. They were stubborn against God. But I was thinking about this. I said, how often are we like that? Oh, maybe we're not resistant to the fact that Christ is the Messiah and that we're not resistant to the gospel, but, but we're resistant to God's will in our lives. We're resistant to his moral will, to his law. And we fight and we kick. and We, we dig our heels in and, and we don't yield. <laughs> Remember Jacob? He was a strong-willed guy. 
And it was in Jacob as he wrestled in the garden with, or wrestled at night with, with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord just touched his hip. And he, Jacob was crippled for the rest of his life. You know, sometimes when we wrestle with God, he has to touch us. That's all he has to do. God doesn't have to do much. He could just touch us with his finger and he could put you down real quick. And so I think it's a warning to all of us, even though we're in the kingdom, we're believers, we could be rebellious, we could be resistant. And all God has to do is put his pinky finger on us and the weight will be crushing. Jacob walked with a cane the rest of his life. It reminded him he needed to rely on God and not himself. And finally, we see, after he was done with the Jews, he rents the hall of Tyrannus, it says. Some of the older translations, like the King James Version, which don't contain the earliest manuscripts, tell us that he rented from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, which would have been the time of siesta, right? During this time period, you worked in the morning from 7 to 11 when it was still cool outside. But from 11 to 4, it's hot. There's no air conditioning. So what do people do? They go to sleep. They still do this in Europe and in the Middle East, and they still do it in South America. People take siestas around the world. Here in America, we just work through the day. It'd be nice to get those siestas, right? But anyhow, the point, me personally, I hated it. When I was in Europe and everything shut down at 12, 1 o'clock, I, I, I went bonkers. But anyway, um, the point being is that Paul seizes this opportunity now, the scripture says here the hall of Tyrannus. The word hall there is the word school in original Greek. It's a schoolhouse. It's a lecture hall. It's where philosophers would come and rent space and charge money to their pupils to speak to them. But Paul rents out this space on his own dime and uses it not to charge people money, but uses it to preach the gospel for two years. I think this, this is a shift, a major paradigm shift in Paul's ministry. And although this would be the end of his missionary work as he would be arrested shortly after this, one thing we could see here, it sets the paradigm for those who come after him. We don't have to go to Jewish synagogues. We could rent space and we could open our doors to preach the gospel. And I think this is the birth, if you will, of church buildings, of people gathering together and renting space and using it. Now, the Hall of Tyrannus was a pagan philosopher, probably, who spoke there. But Paul had no problem renting the space and using it for the gospel. And that took place in the early church. Slowly but surely, the church took over a lot of pagan uh, uh, buildings and pagan uh, 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 temples. Big pagan temple in Rome, right? Well, Claudia and I went there. The, um, I forgot the name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, the pan, not the, was it the Pantheon? I, I can't remember. I think it's the Pantheon. In the city of Rome, there is a, a pagan temple, an ancient pagan temple. It's huge, and it's got a huge dome on it. Tremendous. I couldn't believe the thing is still standing from, from ancient times. But shortly after the gospel spread through Rome, it was converted to a church. Interestingly enough, when that pagan temple was converted to a church is when the holiday or the holy day of All Hallows Day began, All Saints Day. little irony there, a little coincidence. Paul begins this lecture and says, all of Asia heard the gospel. For two years, Paul freely gave the gospel. 
For two years, he dialogued with the community. And so I want to take something very important away from this, is let us learn to follow also in the same way. Let us learn to do what John Stott called dialogue evangelism. Having conversations with people, finding out what their worldviews are, what are their beliefs, what are their religions, what are their views of life, and then deconstructing it and showing them what does God say, and more importantly, pointing them to the scripture. We don't want to be apologists just for the sake of being an apologist and winning arguments and debates with people. The goal of apologetics is always to point the person to Jesus Christ, to bring conversion. Many people in Asia heard the gospel from Paul based there in Ephesus. Many people got saved, and we'll learn later on, even the Asiarchs in verse 31, who were the political leaders of Asia. These were the Roman officials. They came to Paul's defense when he was uh, brought into the Colosseum and brought charges against him. They came to his defense and they encouraged him because his influence extended even to those in public office. We need to have robust dialogue evangelism with the rest of the world around us. We don't run away. We don't go hide in the woods. I see a lot of Christians running away lately. I could understand People are running to the woods and living in the mountains far away from everybody. What evangelism can you do there? I see people running to so-called conservative states. Well, what good is that? You think there's no sin there? You think you're going to run away from sin? I think it's even worse there. Maybe as Pastor Ed Moore used to call the South the Christian ghetto because everybody thinks they're a Christian, but no one's saved. God has us right where we are. We have a lot of atheistic and ungodly people dialogue with them find out what their beliefs are show them the better way show them the truth god needs us right where we are here in new york in this most corrupt area because these cities ephesus corinth all of them were utter bastions of corruption paul didn't run from there and go into the country he didn't go to the religious people the religious people gave him the hardest time he ran away from them he went right into the right into the fire right into the the place where most sin was. Well, let me conclude by saying this. There's one overarching theme today. It's sola scriptura. The Bible is sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. We don't need tongues. We don't need prophecies. We don't need any extra biblical revelation. Everything that God had to say to us is said in the 66 books of the Bible. God's revelation is complete. I recall when I was a Pentecostal, I met this one woman who had prophecies on a daily basis. And I asked her one day, just out of curiosity, as I was starting to come out of it, I says, have you ever read the whole Bible? She goes, no. I found that very interesting. Here's a woman who never read the Bible, but every day said, thus saith the Lord. We're all works in progress. We're all learning. We're all growing. Let God's word be that instrument which guides us, which teaches us. It was God's word that is not only sufficient, but is, is all sufficient in our evangelism efforts, in our apologetics. Don't try to get into wacky debates with people. Just stick to scripture. Stick to the word. Let God's word do the work. Don't try to be clever. When you're reasoning with unbelievers, point them right to God's word. God is powerful 
is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the gospel is very powerful. It's the dunamis. It's the dynamite that enables us to believe. I want to close with this reading from the London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 2, the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation and faith and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Thus saith the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that uh, your revelation would percolate in our hearts, help us to love you, to read and study your word more instead of seeking for signs and wonders. And I pray for my Pentecostal brethren and and my Pentecostal sisters, people who I love dearly. Oh, Lord, we know that uh, they love you, and I just pray that they would have a firmer grip on Scripture and not rest on their emotions. I pray, Father God, for us today, may the rest of our day, remainder, be a time to glorify you. We pray for the service today at um, Red Mills, and I pray that everyone be able to attend. And may in this Reformation Day, may we ever be reforming to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.